Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on alternative investments and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Anton Pill, Global Head of Alternatives. Hi, Anton. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Great to be back, David. Well, thank you for joining us again. So today, we're excited to bring you another episode on alternatives and the implications of the current macro environment for institutional investors. We kind of plan on going around the world today and covering quite a bit from ESG and carbon offsets to what's going on in real estate with respect to the office, and finally, private equity and private credit as well. And so let's not waste any more time with formalities and jump right in with our first question. I figure let's kick off with ESG. It's timely. COP26 just wrapped up here. And, you know, the importance of ESG has really been at the forefront of institutional investors' minds for the better part of the past year. And we very much think that that's going to continue into 2022. And so can you talk a little bit about ESG in the context of alternatives, maybe touch a little bit on the topic of carbon credits? Would love to hear what you're seeing as you look across the alternative landscape broadly. Yeah, look, I think it plays a critical role in investing in alternatives. And generally for a very basic reason, most of the investments we make have a time element that is fairly lengthy. So the investments we're making today, we might only be profiting from them in five or 10 years from now. So I think you have to be thinking ahead of how ESG has an impact to whatever asset you're buying or how you're thinking about your investment style. So from my seat, I embed it sort of functionally in every piece of our alternatives business. It's not sort of an overlay. It's not an afterthought. It's got to be critical to what you do. And we've seen this over time, right? Like people who own real estate, people who want to live someplace or people who have an office someplace, they want to be in what's probably considered the highest lead platinum billing. This notion of ESG being an integral part of our investment cycle has been core to what we've done for a long time and I still think is going to continue to grow. The carbon market one is fascinating. It's very rare that we wake up and there's a new market that we decide to start trading and it has a value. And it's something we've been spending a lot of time on, obviously, as one of the world's largest owners of forests now. And as a forest manager, we've been thinking through this very, very carefully because generally people are thinking about how do we reduce emissions, but you can also think about how do you capture those emissions and how do you pair those two thoughts together? I think it's going to be one of the most exciting spaces in alternatives coming up. And whether you're transitioning from an old ship to a new ship and therefore reducing emissions, or whether you're going to plant a brand new forest that's going to capture carbon, the role of financial markets in the environmental question of carbon dioxide is going to just continue to grow and it's going to be a fascinating opportunity set for many clients. Yeah, and it's certainly something that comes up quite a bit in my client conversations. One of the other things that I wanted to get your perspective on when it comes to ESG, and actually, you know, the conversation today is a perfect example. We spend a lot of time on the E, a lot of time on the G, and the S kind of gets lost in translation. And so how do you think about moving the needle on the S across your various investment platforms? Yeah, I think at least in some of our asset classes, this has become maybe as important as E, or in some cases more important, right? So if I think of, we own a lot of water companies, and so therefore, what role are we playing in society with those investments, I think is a very important question. And I think COVID tested a lot of those. When you go back and you think of what happened during COVID, 
think it's kind of fascinating to think through what were your managers or what were the companies you owned? What were they doing in the context of COVID? Were they helping their local communities? You know, we set up vaccination locations at a number of our buildings across the U.S. We're providing sort of free data services for some of our sailors on our ships. Like, what did you do in particular to sort of broadly help society? And I think COVID's going to be an interesting litmus test. And people will be able to go back and check that on the ass. And frankly, a lot of investors are expecting us to play a much more active role on the social aspects, not just of the investments we make, but also of the composition of our own investors, right? So if I think of my team, I want my team to look like the broad communities we're serving. And I think that's not something you do passively. I think it has to be an active decision you're making. And clients are beginning to demand more and more of it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And you know, you mentioned repurposing some of the real estate assets on the platform as testing sites. Would love to get your perspective on real estate a little bit more broadly, particularly what are you seeing in terms of the shift towards remote work or hybrid work? What do you think that means for offices in particular? And maybe by extension of that, you know, the retail sector, which I think a lot of people went into the pandemic and kind of left it for dead, seems to be having a little bit of a renaissance here. So we'd love your perspective on those two areas. So look, I think on the remote work, people can look around at their neighbors, etc. It slowly seems to be converging that you would work three or four days from an office and one or two days from home. And that seems to be slowly growing as a consensus. Fascinatingly enough, in a context of as an office owner, I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. We haven't seen a significant reduction in office space by most of our tenants. If anything, it's quite the opposite. A lot of tech companies are still increasing their space, frankly, to offer that degree of flexibility. So giving your employees more flexibility, especially in a tight labor market, does imply that they do have an office to go to, not that you have to exclusively or can only work from home. Now, we continue to see, at least even in our own investment teams, having people get together a couple days a week and in person have sort of the more impromptu conversations about their investments, et cetera, is still very, very important. And I think that's going to continue. And on a valuation context, by the way, I think a lot of real estate hasn't come back the same way we've seen more publicly traded markets come back as we're in the later innings of COVID. The retail space is probably the most fascinating. Most of our retail spaces today have sales higher than they were pre-COVID and across the board. The foot traffic is often very similar or slightly lower, but the spends are much, much higher. And the piece that I find intriguing is that it hasn't sort of reflected yet in broader valuations of these assets. So you've got revenue that is picked up that is now in some cases higher than it was pre-COVID, but the valuations of the assets themselves oftentimes are still down 20 to 30% from pre-COVID levels. So I do think there's sort of an interesting normalization that's taking place. And I think as we sort of hopefully get towards the end of some more normalcy post-COVID, I think you're going to see some valuation normalization in that space. Very interesting. And maybe just taking this one step further. So a lot of people going back to the stores, maybe because they've had some challenges getting things shipped directly to their front doorstep. I think the supply chain disruptions we've seen, they're well known, they're well understood. But from a transportation perspective, what do you see as the impact of these broader supply chain issues on that asset class in particular? Yeah, by the way, maybe just touching on the supply chain issues. Maybe people are like, oh, it'll be a month. In two months, it'll be fine. I find that these things usually have a lot more 
little side effects that will take a lot longer to clean up than people think. It'll also probably drive people to owning more inventories longer term. And you're right, it actually may be supporting some of the retail activity we're seeing, because if you go to the store, at least you can see it. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I've ordered plenty of things that had said 24-hour delivery or 48-hour delivery, and four weeks later, they're like, well, just kidding, it was a good try, we tried. (laughs) so, So I think most of us are experiencing that, and I think that's here to stay. I mean, as an investor who owns a lot of ships and transportation type assets, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but it's not really a problem for us because just because a ship isn't moving doesn't mean I'm not getting paid my rent for the ship. It's like when you rent a car from a car rental agency and you drive to the wedding day that you're trying to make it to, and then you park the car and you go to the wedding, the 12 hours a car is parked there, you're still paying for the car. The same is true for us. So that hasn't necessarily been a negative. I'm more concerned longer term about how systemic inflation is going to be. And I'm sorry we're going off topic here a little bit, but it's too easy as an excuse to try to excuse everything away. And maybe it's because I grew up in Brazil, but I think inflation, once it's in people's psyche, is quite difficult to get rid of. So I think some of these issues are here to stay for a lot longer than people probably expect. I would certainly agree with that. And for a while, we've been talking to the clients about how the forces of inflation we're seeing, the specific areas we're seeing inflation come from, right? It's broadening out. It's becoming less transitory and more difficult to simply write it off. I had a perfect example the other night. I had my whole family over for dinner and we ordered from an Italian place up the street. I ordered somebody the chicken parm dinner, which used to come with a side of pasta. Now the side of pasta costs an additional couple of dollars. And so when you start to see things broaden out into restaurants, then there are impacts on wages. And rightly so, inflation is one of these economic forces that is very, very psychological. And once you begin to see that get ingrained, particularly amongst lower income individuals, it can be very challenging to break. And so I actually think that's a perfect segue into something else I wanted to talk to you about and get a little bit of a sense of what you're seeing across some of the portfolio companies on the private equity side and and some of the borrowers on the private credit side. What are you seeing in private markets broadly? One of the things we touch on in Guide to Alternatives is that applications for new business formation skyrocketed during the pandemic. And a lot of these businesses currently have no sponsored backing. And so what are you seeing? What does the opportunity set look like? And has the composition of the investments you're considering changed in the aftermath of this pandemic here? Yeah, look, I think the private company creation continues to be very healthy in the United States. And I think if you go back 30 years ago and you wanted to start a company, generally what that would have meant, or even let's say 50 years ago, you would have had to buy a special hat making machine and it would have been a very special heavy machine that you had to then specially design. It was probably fairly expensive. Today, you and I could use our laptop and design an app and try to sell it to 100 million people. The cost of entry is just extraordinarily low. And I think that's part of the reason why you're going to see continued growth, in my mind, in in areas like tech in particular, which I think are very sort of entry level light in terms of expense, right? If you and I were going to start a new company to make chips because there's a chip shortage and we're going to create the Dave Leibowitz chip, it would cost us hundreds of millions of dollars to start that company. If we want to start a company that calculates the distance of, I don't know, whatever it is on an app, we could do it for like probably $4,000. So I think you're going to continue to see dramatic growth in the tech area because the barrier to entries are so low. It does mean, though, that I think some of the other value creation that will be fascinating, especially on the climate side, will be, I think, in some of the more 
actual technologies that are going to improve climate, where you're going to be investing in companies that are going to require hundreds of millions of dollars and not $10,000. So I think there's some very interesting opportunities longer term coming in sort of physical technologies that we haven't seen yet. And then I think we're also seeing continued growth in general in private credit markets as just the availability of credit. You just have many places that you can get credit as a company and people are going to continue to try to find whatever source fits their particular needs best. And lastly, I think as we talked about inflation, the uncertainty of where markets are headed, I think, are going to continue to drive people to owning more privates in general. Because whether for better or for worse, private valuations tend to move slower than public markets. They tend not to overreact. They are priced less regularly, which you might think from a sort of a degree of transparency may be worse than something that prices every second. But from a psychological standpoint, when you're going through a particularly volatile period of capital markets, which I think we're going to get in the next six to 12 months, being forced to kind of wait out and look for the long term for your valuation creation, I think could be very helpful to keep people invested through what I think is going to be a very rocky period. I know that again, this is going a little off script, but take, for example, the market movements on a number of cryptocurrencies. It's almost as if it's normal that that asset class moved 50% yesterday, up or down. And the reality is for a lot of investors, a long-term investment plan requires you to stay invested. So to the ability that you can help people stay invested, I think that's actually going to be a positive in longer term. Yeah, I completely agree. The volatility of private assets was a big focus of our long-term capital market assumptions exercise this year and very sympathetic to the view you just expressed, which is, you know, if it's not getting marked every single day, it can be easier to stay the course. I would actually take that one step further and say on the private side, you're able to much more nimbly pull levers to address the challenges that your company may be facing in a way that isn't necessarily the case with the large and mega cap corporations. And so we've covered a lot here today and just wanted to give you the final word. We're a week out from Thanksgiving as we record this. The end of the year is in sight. As we think about rolling into 2022, what haven't we talked about today that is on your mind? And what do you want to leave our listeners with as you think about the coming year? The number one thing that most people should slowly be concerned about is that the free lunch from central banks around the world is over. It was a great time. It almost didn't matter which asset class you're in. You got to benefit from it. And that's coming to an end. And now we all know it's coming to an end. And everyone's like, well, therefore, it's priced in. I'm not sure I buy that thesis. I think unless somebody else steps up and buys the same assets that central banks were buying, we're going to see a pretty large supply demand imbalance in some public markets. And I think the implications on that to people's portfolios. People just need to have sort of an eyes wide open that the last several decades, in particular in fixed income of performance and returns, are simply not going to happen. And so I am a little bit more sanguine on the outlook and really would strongly encourage people to think about where are places that they can own, what are stable assets that have some degree of maybe we're a little out of favor for a while, that they have a stable degree of return and maybe some degree of inflation protection. And ride out that transitory period that perhaps may not be that transitory. But that shift is something everyone's really got to be paying attention to. And if you don't do it before year end, you definitely should be thinking about it in the first quarter. 
And I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, for a long time on the institutional side, we've had conversations around the role of fixed income and fixed income substitutes. And to your point about inflation, I think we're kind of reading the tea leaves in the same way. There's now another risk that needs to be taken into account beyond just rates moving higher in an absolute sense. And so, Anton, as always, an absolute pleasure having you join us today and looking forward to having you again on the show soon. Always fun, David. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on November 15th, 2021. Not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, 
JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 197601586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For US only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1 800 343 1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved.